Good morning, friends, family. It's good to be here. I just have to share something personal. We got a phone call yesterday from Budapest, Hungary. Uh, our granddaughter serves the Lord there. And she had a special request to make of me. She met a young man in Budapest. They got engaged. And after engagement, of course, uh, the next step is marriage. And so she asked me if I would perform the marriage in Budapest. So isn't that neat? I just had to share that with you. You can't keep quiet about things like that, you know. Well, this morning I'd like to share with you something from the book of Hosea. One of my favorite books. And I'd like to introduce what I have to say in this fashion. In 1960, there was a trial that captured the attention of the entire world. It was reported in every magazine and every newspaper in every country that had a printing press. And I'd like to read to you just a short excerpt from Time magazine. Quote, The prisoner sat in the dock, closely guarded. His face was pale and the corners of his mouth twitched nervously. And the prosecutor bore in relentlessly on the accused as he documented crime after crime after crime. And then in a sudden and rare display of emotion, Gideon Hausner, the prosecutor, waggled his finger at the accused and said this, Your crimes against humanity can never be forgiven. There can be no pardon There can be no compassion. Eichmann's face was a hideous mask. No forgiveness, no pardon, no compassion. Death and only death was to be his sentence. In 1971, I, with several others, drove past the prison Eichmann had been held and in which he had been hanged. And our guide told us that because Israel has no death penalty in their constitution, that the constitution had been suspended for one day in order to allow for the hanging of Eichmann. No forgiveness, no pardon, no compassion. This morning I would like to direct our thinking along three lines. First, I would like to, for us to see that God's attitude towards Israel right from the very beginning was that he loved them. That's the nature of God. God's attitude, God, God's attitude is always love toward people everywhere. John 3.16 tells us that very clearly, for God so loved the world. And when we mention the word world in that text, it is not the cosmos that he's talking about, but rather the world of people, you and I. That's who he loves. 
Not that he doesn't love the cosmos, but he loves us supremely. And uh, that is so neat to know that. Secondly, I want to contrast this attitude of love of God for Israel with Israel's terrible rebellion and rejection of God. And we'll look at eight ways in which Israel despised the love of God and how she rejected a God of grace. And the big question is, can Israel be forgiven? Can Israel be pardoned? Can there be compassion for this nation? And lastly, I want us to look at the heart of God. A God of whom it is said in the text that we will read shortly, all his compassions are aroused for people he loves. So let's look at Israel's history and see how God loved her from the first. Turn in your Bibles, if you will, to Hosea chapter 11. I'm reading from the New International Version. There were some particular verses that I thought uh, came out so clearly and so beautifully in this version that I decided I would use the NIV today. Let's read the first 11 verses of Hosea chapter 11. When Israel was a child, I loved him. And out of Egypt I called my son. But the more I called Israel, the further they went from me. They sacrificed to the Baals and they burned incense to images. It was I who taught Ephraim to walk. Ephraim, incidentally, is another term for Israel. It was I who taught Ephraim to walk, taking them by the arms, but they did not realize that it was I who healed them. I led them with cords of human kindness, with ties of love. I lifted the yoke from their neck and bent down to feed them. Will they not return to Egypt and will not Assyria rule over them because they refuse to repent? Swords will flash in their cities, will destroy the bars of their gates and put an end to their plans. My people are determined to turn from me. Even if they call to the Most High, He will by no means exalt them. And here's one of the great laments of God. How can I give you up, Ephraim? How can I hand you over, Israel? How can I treat you like Adma? How can I make you like Zeboim? My heart is changed within me. All my compassion is aroused. I will not carry out my fierce anger, nor devastate Ephraim again. For I am God and not man, the Holy One among you. I will not come in wrath. They will follow the Lord. He will roar like a lion. When He roars, His children will come trembling from the west. They will come trembling like birds from Egypt, like doves from Assyria. I will settle them in their homes, declared the Lord. May God bless His Word to us. 
Shall we pray? Father in heaven, we're amazed at this uh, passage that reveals to us who you, what kind of a God you are. Loving someone right from the very beginning. Having that person turn their back on you and yet your compassions for them, for us, for this congregation are aroused. And Father, we give you thanks. Bless, Father, our meditation this morning. For we pray it in the name of Jesus. Amen. Please keep your Bibles open to chapter 11. We're going to go down a, a little bit verse by verse for a, for a little bit. But verse 1. When Israel was a child, I loved him. From the very beginning, from Israel's infancy, God loved Israel. God's relationship with Israel began with love and before Israel became a nation, God loved them. He came down and rescued them from her slavery and misery. And isn't that the way it is with people everywhere? God sees our need. He looks at us and sees, oh, what a bunch of needy people. And He loves the needy. And he sent Jesus to rescue us. Israel's beginning was God loving her in her need. And so it is with us. The second thing I want to mention, verse 3. I taught Ephraim to walk. Isn't that great? This would mean God acting ever so patiently, encouraging, holding by the hand, picking up the child when Israel fell down. And I saw some of this firsthand some time ago when my son, his wife, and their then 11-month-old grandson came to visit us. Sometimes our grandson wanted to go in one direction and the mother wanted to go in a different direction. And can you imagine the Almighty doing this with Israel, with you, with me? When we wanted to go stray over here, it takes us, come back, come back, Hugo, come back. That's the kind of God we have. That's the kind of a God that loves us so very, very much. And we see God helping Israel to walk as Israel starts the path going through the wilderness. This granddaughter of ours in Budapest, Kathleen taught her how to walk in Bolivia. When our daughter was a missionary there. So neat. Thirdly, verse 3. I healed Israel. When Israel fell and hurt herself in the process of learning to walk, God bound up her wounds until she felt better. 
I saw some tears in our grandson's face, that 11-month-old child, when he bumped into something. And I recall our grandson putting something in his mouth that was too hot and crying out of distress. Then I saw my daughter-in-law, Charlene, go into action and take care of the baby's needs. And I saw her hold the baby and uh, comfort him until it was all better, you know. Did you know that God is like that? With his little children whom he loves? Verse 3, I healed Israel. He does that with us. A fourth thing. Verse 4. I led them with cords of human kindness, with ties of love. God didn't force Israel. He didn't whip Israel. And notice the two expressions, cords of love and ties of love. That which holds things together best is love. That which keeps a relationship going best is love. That which holds a family together best is love. And Colossians 3.14 tells us that love binds all of virtues, all of the virtues together with love. Did you know that God doesn't tie us with chains? He doesn't put us into a place of bondage. God does it with love. And that's how he holds us together. Isn't that great? Great God. Fifth thing, verse 4. I bent down to feed them. And here you have a picture of the great God way up there in heaven. And we're way down here on earth. And we're hungry. And he bends down to feed us. That's the nature and character of our God. He bends down because we can't reach up. So he adjusts To our need. When Israel complained about lack of food, he bent down so gently and fed her with manna, the bread from heaven. And so it is. He feeds us. That is the way God treated Israel, the way he treats us. And would you think that Israel would surely thank God for all of his kindness and love, but instead Israel turns her back on God. And uh, verse 7 relates these sad words to us. Verse 7. My people are determined to turn from me. When we see how God beautifully and wonderfully demonstrates his love to Israel... Uh, I'm amazed. 
But in contrast, I want us to see eight different ways in which Israel appeared determined to turn from God who loved her so much. And I want you, there's, there's at least eight steps here. There are probably more, but I just want to mention eight. And we'll go through these quickly. Verse, and, and I, I want to do this by doing a bit of a survey here of the book of Hosea and starting from chapter two of Hosea and verse eight and just noticing what, uh, how Israel strayed away from God. In chapter 2, verse 8, it says, Israel despises and misuses God's gift. I want you to listen to the text. Israel, she has not acknowledged that it was I who gave her the grain, the new wine and oil, who lavished on her silver and gold, and then what? Which they used for Baal. God gave her all of the gifts. God gave her all that she needed. And what does she do? She uses them to practice idolatry. Amazing. Amazing. Israel not only fails to give thanks but uses these gifts to further something that was anti-God. So what do you do with God's gifts to you? You know, gifts like good health, good looks. You're a good-looking group of people here. A good mind, a particular good talent. You know, today we have the cult of the of body worship, beauty contests. We have Mensa for those who have a certain IQ. Can we use these good gifts for the sake of the gospel or do we use these good gifts against him? You know, sometimes I, I read books that I don't recommend to people because I just want to see what society is doing. And uh, I like to be informed. And here are some very, very clever people who obviously have some, who have been talented, have a gift. And instead of using those gifts for God, they use it to slam God. And I say, how terrible. If those gifts could only be used in the right direction... A second step down is Israel's lack of knowledge in chapter 4 and verse 6. My people are destroyed from lack of knowledge. And this is Hosea's basic charge. The nation is ignorant of God's law. Through neglect or as a result of her sin, Israel's thinking, her understanding is deficient. And 1 Corinthians chapter 4 and verse 4 reminds us that the God of this age has blinded the minds of unbelievers so that they cannot see the light of the gospel. And Ecclesiastes chapter 9 verse 3 reminds us that there must be an insanity or madness in the heart of men. What does that mean? I'd like to suggest that men must be crazy 
not to accept the free gift of salvation. They must be crazy to put themselves at risk to spending an eternity without God. That's insanity. Why is it that people ignore the Word of God? A man told my wife uh, just a week or so ago uh, when he refused to come to a Bible study, he said, you know, Bible study is not my thing. People are destroyed from lack of knowledge. Destroyed. A third strip down is Israel's lack of constancy. Chapter 6 and verse 4. And I'd just like to extract a couple of one sentence out of it. Chapter 6, verse 4. Your love is like the morning mist, like the early dew that disappears. Your love is like that. As soon as there's a little heat from the morning sun, the mist and the dew vanish. How constant are you in following our Lord? You know, I need to ask myself that question and I suspect that you may need to ask yourself also the same question. When there's a little pressure here, a little criticism there, do you fade easily? Do you flit here and there? You know, you go here and then you go there uh, because there's a kind of a siren call that attracts us and so, therefore, we, we go here. And for a little while, we enjoy, or may enjoy, what's going on. How constant is our love? When somebody gives us something, then we love. When we're praised, then we love. And when that may be withdrawn, what happens? Does love also disappear? Does it vanish? Can your love be depended on in sickness or in health, in the good times or the bad times, till death do us part? A fourth downward step. Using religion as a pretense. Chapter 6, verse 6. God says, I desire mercy not sacrifice, and the acknowledgement of God rather than burnt offerings. I like to think of the sacrifices and the burnt offerings here as a religion. But God desires more than that. He desires mercy. And He desires the acknowledgement of God. Our God does not want hypocrisy in our worship or in our service. Our God wants more of our heart and a lot less of our lip service. Our God wants us to have a softer heart with regard to people. And He's looking for mercy on our part. Our God wants us to acknowledge God in our day-to-day activities. Too often people want to take the credit for the successes They've achieved and forget God. 
Interestingly, about this verse, it was God Himself who started the sacrificial system and who instructed Israel the proper procedures. And now it is God once again telling us that the true priorities really, when it comes down to our worship, is mercy and the knowledge, acknowledgement of God. The fifth step downward was worldliness. Chapter 7 and verse 8. Ephraim, another name for Israel, mixes with the nations. Ephraim is a flat cake not turned over. Sounds like my cooking sometimes. Israel, instead of looking to God, turned to other countries as Assyria for help. And in doing that, she got entangled in the Assyrian culture and religion. As a consequence, she was despised by the Assyrians and distanced from God. The flat cake not turned, you know, burned on one side and raw on the other. Good for nothing. Whenever, whenever Christians dabble in worldly things, it's a long slide downhill away from God. And worldliness often takes the form of doing whatever we want, we want to do without regard for God. It's a kind of living as if God didn't exist. And people who live that way will find themselves living immoral and debauched lives. Worldliness ruins any so-called witness for God. The sixth step down I call deceit. Chapter 7, verse 16. They do not turn to the Most High. They are like a faulty or deceitful bow. No, they did bow and arrows. And here was a, a bow that was maybe warped in some way. And when you tried to shoot, you'd be sure to miss the target. You're either wide or short or maybe too far, but never on target. Never on target. Israel was unreliable as a bow. Israel was as hypocritical as this bow. It looked fine from a little distance. But when it came to shooting the bow, they couldn't hit the target. As a matter of fact, that is one of the classic definitions of sin. Sin is failure to hit the mark. That's what the classic Greek definition and Hebrew definition of sin is a failure to hit the mark. A faulty bow. One might pretend to be a straight shooter, but if you've got a faulty bow, you're not going to do it. Some of us may talk a good talk, but as the common saying goes, we need to walk the talk. The seventh step downward 
was Israel's decline was corruption. Chapter 9, verse 9. They have sunk deep in corruption as in the days of Gebeah. Now, Gebeah. What happened in Gebeah is probably the ugliest story in the Bible. I don't like to read that chapter in the book of Judges, those two chapters. The days of Gebeah in Judges 19 and 20 speak of gross immorality and gross sexual perversion, callous indifference to human life, and to top it off, City Hall does, doesn't do anything about it, but actually defends it. And this reminds me so much of our world today. The days of Gebeah. And that's where Israel had sunk deep in corruption as in the days of Gebeah. Horrible situation. Horrible. I did a series on the book of Judges, uh, I think last year somewhere. And uh, those were the toughest chapters for me to, to think about. Were chapters 19 and 20. The eighth and last step I want to mention is idolatry. Hosea chapter 13 and verse 2. And here we read, Now they sin more and more. They make idols for themselves from their silver, cleverly fashioned images, and all of them the work of a craftsman. They've abandoned God. They make God with their own hands. They've replaced Him with their idols. And uh, they're living what Romans chapter 1 verse 23 tells us. The ungodly have exchanged the image of the immortal God for images made to look like mortal man and birds and animals and reptiles. And uh, you can look at almost any issue of the National Geographic, it seems, and you see uh, an ugly idol. And I mean, they're ugly, I think. And they're made by the hands of men who think they're clever. They make them and then they bow down to the things that they have made. Israel stands guilty before God. She's exposed. She's naked. Her sin is spread out before Him. She's worthy only to be judged and condemned. And what is God to do with this kind of nation? Will God say, for you there is no forgiveness, no pardon, no compassion. Is that what He's going to say? No. Turn to... Look at that, Hosea 11, verse 8. How can I give you up? Ephraim. How can I hand you over Israel? 
How can I treat you like Adma? How can I make you like Zeboim? Maybe you don't know what those two cities are, Adma and Zeboim. But Adma and Zeboim were uh, uh, suburbs of Sodom and Gomorrah. And they were destroyed along with Sodom and Gomorrah. And he said, how can I make you like these suburbs that were destroyed? I can't do that. Then he speaks of his compassions aroused. You know, four times God says, how can I? How can I? How can God give up on people that he loves? How can he cast off his bride Israel? How could God treat his people like Adam and Zeboim? If you, incidentally, if you want a verse for that, Deuteronomy 29:23. How could God bring himself to condemn Israel to hell? And then the last sentence there in verse 8, my heart is changed within me. All my compassion is aroused. And when God and when it says all his compassion is aroused, I, that's that's a lot of compassion. The need is so great, and God's love for his people cannot be removed. His love is constant. His love is greater than my sin sin. And I think we have a song that says something like that. Love greater than our sin. God felt compassion when he saw the consequences of Israel's sins, the pain, the disappointments, the futility, the regrets. God felt compassion on Israel when he saw her following idols that he knew would disappoint her. God felt compassion on Israel when he knew how much she would suffer during the exile. God felt compassion on Israel when he saw Israel's enemies triumph over her. All his compassions were aroused. Then I want you to notice verse 9. Three times in verse 9, God says, I will not. I will not carry out my fierce anger. I won't do it. I will not devastate Ephraim again. And I will not come in wrath. Why? The middle of verse 9. For I am God and not man, the Holy One among you. Man is quick to condemn. Man doesn't have a whole lot of compassion. Man says, put him to death. Kill him. Crucify him. Aren't you glad that your eternal destiny is not left to the hands of men, but rather to a God of love and compassion? Justice and love. How can the two be brought together? The soul that sins must die. That's justice. Deserve to die. The court of God is just. And we deserve to die. But God is also a God of love. So how do we put those two together? I'm glad 
that we have a God who found a way to bring justice and love together. Socrates supposedly said this, there must be a way for God to forgive sin, but I don't know how. Obviously, if God forgives sin, sin is set aside. And if he sets sin aside, he fails to condemn sin. So how does he do it? And here we have the principle of substitution. Substitutionary atonement. And according to this, penal, uh, this principle, the penalty is executed on, for sin on the substitute. And the substitute takes my place, dies in my place, dies in the place that I deserve. in order that I might go free. And I want you to listen to a verse from the Bible. When I told this to once to a friend of mine some years ago, he couldn't believe that that verse was in the Bible. But I want you to listen to this. God made him who had no sin to be sin for us. So, that in Him we might become the righteousness of God. Can you believe that verse? Wow. Second Corinthians, Second Corinthians chapter 5 and verse 21. God made Him who had no sin to be sin for me, for you. So that you and I might become the righteousness of God in Him. Wow. God's justice fell on Jesus who took our place and who himself took the penalty that we deserved. He became our perfect substitute. And in this sense, God's love is not hindered. When we see Jesus with arms outstretched, that's how much he loves us. His heart of love flows out to the world for any who will receive it. And that's our challenge here this morning. God has loved you and I from the very beginning. When we were born, God loved us. But as you and I all know, we have not always responded in the proper way to God, to the God who cared for us. We know that, don't we? We know that, we don't like this word sin, I know that. But, you know, there's hardly any other word to describe how you and I have, have obeyed, have acted. But to call it sin for what it is. And... Uh, he loved us from the beginning, but then we sinned and continued to sin and continued to sin. But God continued to love us. And the offer goes out to every person. I love you, says God. 
And then he waits for your answer. Do you love him? As he says to you this morning, I love you. Would you say I love you back this morning? Would you respond to him and say I love you too? And that's what he wants this morning from anyone here who doesn't, has not yet ever said that. He wants that response from you. And so we're going to pray. And uh, if you would like to say that this morning, I'd like to ask you to quickly raise your hand in just a moment and say, yes, today's the day I want to say I love you back. Let's pray. And if God is speaking to you this morning, would you just uh, raise your hand and say, yes, I, uh, I do want to respond to you, Lord, to your love, to your care your compassion to your pardon your offer of forgiveness for bringing me into your family would you raise your hand yes thank you is there anyone else let's pray Father in heaven, we come to you in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord. And thank you for this God who loved us so very much from the beginning. And who nurtured us, who provided us with so much. And then made a way for us to be with God forever. Lord, we give you thanks. Bless this fellowship. Bless this person who raised their hand. And uh, may you, Father, be all this person needs. And give that person a great joy. And we pray this in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen.